Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at the Cambridge Judge Business School. This is a new podcast series which spe where specialists from the business school and the wider Cambridge University community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on globalization and discussing whether globalization is changing, being reshaped, going into reverse, particularly with the election of Donald Trump and the vote for Brexit. We're actually recording this as the meeting of the World Economic Forum at Davos is coming to an end. At Davos, President Trump and Prime Minister May have indicated that there will be a trade agreement between the UK and the US post-Brexit, which sounds good for trade and good for globalization. But on the other hand, earlier this week, we have seen Donald Trump lay another brick in the protectionist wall as he's raised tariffs on solar panels and washing machines. So I'd like to introduce my three guests today who are going to discuss this topic. Joining me on today's session are first of all, Jennifer Howard Grenville, the Diageo Professor in Organization Studies and Director of our doctoral program here at Cambridge Judge. Also Stelios Cavadias, the Margaret Thatcher Professor of Enterprise Studies and Director of the Entrepreneurship Centre at the school. And Neil Stott, who directs our Masters of Studies in Social Innovation program and the Centre for Social Innovation. So welcome all three of you. Just to kick off, um, if I may, about developments in globalization. It's been a common refrain that we live in a highly globalized world. Uh, for some, we talk about a borderless world where increasing globalization is treated as an inevitable process, almost a natural phenomenon like the weather or gravity. Uh, here, here I'm reminded of a quote from Tony Blair who said, um, I hear people say we have to stop and debate globalization. You might as well debate whether autumn follows summer. Um, I think here we are actually going to disagree with Tony Blair and discuss whether globalization is an inevitable process and whether it may be changing shape. Uh, I, I, for one, have to think that Tony Blair is mistaken on here. I tend to focus on two key drivers of globalization. Uh, first, public policy, and second, developments in technology. Public policies such as openness to trade, openness to migration, and openness to foreign business have improved globalization. Technology, technology in terms of developments which improve transportation, communication, and reduce costs, and allow businesses to develop global supply chains. But both policy and technology can change and may be changing. Since the financial crisis, there's been a worldwide rise in protectionist pressures. Such mercantilist tendencies may be exacerbated by the election of Donald Trump, uh, of the President of the United States, and by the vote for the UK to leave the European Union. This rise in protectionism, the policies of Donald Trump, the implications of Brexit could be interpreted as leading to deglobalization. So the first topic, the first question I want to ask the panelists today is, is this time different? Is globalization changing shape? And is the world becoming less integrated? Are we actually leading or going in the direction of a world of deglobalization? I think the question, is globalization changing shape, is actually a nice phrasing of the question, as opposed to Tony Blair's implication that things are linear and that there's only one direction upon which this can move, either forward or backward, because in my mind, it's not linear at all. Uh, globalization is changing, but it's changing in form and in shape. And while some borders might be 
increasingly becoming less important, other borders and boundaries and fissures are becoming more important. So it might be less about national borders and the movement of goods and people um, and more about, in the contemporary environment, changes that are shifting how income inequality, social inequality is enacted and felt within countries, which is actually connecting and disconnecting across different fissure lines. I think, I think, I think we should return to income equality in a minute, but yes. still, else. So, so I, I, I agree with Jennifer in the following sense. I think it's, it's, we're treating the subject as a zero-one, right? Globalization or not, deglobalization or not. And in my mind, this is moving forces on a spectrum, right? So it's true that I, we were living in a more globalized world from a commerce standpoint. But the reality is that the world was always connected. There were different you know, barriers to, to move goods and people and money across the different borders. And, and those barriers have been going up and down in different periods of time. It seemed that we, we had them a little bit more reduced in the recent years. The world became flatter and so on and so forth, a la, a la Friedman, right, back in, in, in 2005, 2006. But That's Thomas Friedman, not Milton Friedman. Yes, indeed, yeah. Thomas Friedman, the, the, the New York Times uh, yeah, yeah. columnist. But the, uh, but the reality is that what, what has happened there, I think, is we saw benefits coming about, like with any innovation, if you want to call it like this. So it was an innovating context for the environment. But those benefits potentially were not distributed equally. So I'm coming to Jennifer's point about the inequality again, right? And, and what we see now is a reaction from the um, constituents, the stakeholders in all this process that actually might have felt we went a bit too far, we need to come back. That, that might be slightly moving in the direction of deglobalization, but I wouldn't envision a world where people stop communicating, trading, um, people and ideas especially going around. I think that that would be too, too, too much of a dark scenario. Just to clarify, I, mean, I think the notion of deglobalization is that we're not going to go back to a world of no globalization. It's that globalization may slow and may go into reverse somewhat. Because exactly. it, it always has done. I mean, yes. globalization isn't a new phenomenon. Exactly. It didn't start in the 1980s exactly. in business schools. Exactly. Um, it, it goes back to before the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. And there are periods where it has stalled and gone into reverse. The one I would point at is the 1930s. We had a crisis, mm -hmm. a bit like the financial crisis. We had a big economic crisis, and countries became inward-looking. Britain decided to make Britain great by having protectionist walls. Uh, and, and there was a big, a big tariff in, in the 1930s in the US. Countries became inward looking and trade went into reverse. So it wasn't the end of globalization, but it was a period where it stalled and went into reverse. And we've had, had hyper-globalization from the 1980s um, with this growth of inequality. And now we've had a pushback. I think many of the people who voted for Trump and many of the people who voted for Brexit were not seen to be gaining from globalization. And they said, well, we need things to change. I would, I would, I would agree, just, just one I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that they were ever intended to gain from globalization. I mean, one thing you missed from, from your list, you know, policy technology, is, is capital and, yeah. and making profit. And obviously, you know, labor and other things were cheaper yeah. in, in different places. And that's the process still going on. I moved from China to Vietnam, for instance, and maybe even Africa in, in due course. Um, so, you know, I, I think that a lot of what's going on at the moment is, is possibly missing some of the, 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 the subtext in the sense it's another wave of um, globalisation or, or possibly retreat, who knows, around artificial intelligence and, and new, new technology where people as a whole may not matter quite so much. 
no matter where you are in the world. I, can, can I add something to, to, to what yeah. Neil just said, which is this notion of, I think we might find parallels a bit that go as deep as you said technologically with the industrial revolution and the information revolution. So when you think in terms of means of production, in a sense, right, back then, the, the steam engine, all these things that led to a huge technological leap, which, however, was controlled initially, at least, by fewer, leading to quite some inequality and, 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 and all the negative aspects that inequality could obviously have, that led to social reactions, which actually coincide with the uh, 1920s and, and, and the fact that at this point in time, people who have ex exploited the means have gone to the maximum a little bit later than the 30s, the crisis, and already since the 20s, there is this reaction that something is going wrong, we are becoming completely unequal around here. And then there had to be quite some intervention, right, that comes after the Second World War, in a sense, to, to, to stabilize things a bit. Something that eventually lasted up until, what, mm. 70s, perhaps? 70s. I mean, after the Second World War, we had the, we had the Bretton Woods system. The Bretton Woods system um, exactly. Governments regulated their markets. We had international, international regulation. We had the so-called golden age of capitalism. And then it unraveled in the 1970s. Yeah. And then we had the, the shift towards sort of capitalism unleashed and globalization unleashed from the late 70s, early 80s onwards. It might be today, might, might be facing the same thing, right? If you think that the means of production is no longer the steam engine, but it's, as, as Neil said, artificial intelligence, access to information, ownership of information, and the capacity to utilize this information to drive value, then all of a sudden, you start seeing a bit of, of, of a similar phenomenon getting into action, right? We, we're going through the cycle of big inequality, and... What, what's, sorry, what, what, what surprises me is the whole Brexit Trump thing was a surprise to so many people. I mean, in my previous life as a practitioner, working with people in a, in a very poor place who were, had said many rude things about migration uh, and everything else, it was not a surprise. You could feel there was a groundswell of discontent. Now, when people are discontented, they tend to lash out to the people closest to them who are different, which happen to be migrants. But I think there's something else going on. I think people, it's not all about migration. People sense that something has happened and something is coming which is going to put their personal you know, livelihoods at risk. Uh, and I would suspect it will probably hit people like ourselves, lawyers, doctors, middle class professionals, even harder than, 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 than we suspect. People might sense that, but they're also learning that through channels that reinforce the messages that they already are hearing and want to hear. So it's very clear that the world now gets its news and exists through echo chambers of media. And to what Stelios was saying earlier, maybe there's an analogy with the Industrial Revolution. We still have the fact that we all need goods. We all need stuff. And I think the production of stuff and the manufacture of goods has been somewhat decoupled from changes in finance and capital and from changes in information, digital technologies, media. So the globalization has led to certain things shifting to other countries and other things becoming really literally seamless. They can occur in any country. And so we now look at a world where I was just ran into Kamal, our colleague in the call, in, in the uh, downstairs, and he said there used to be a phrase, what's good for GM, General Motors, is good for America, implying that GM is robust, it provides manufacturing jobs, it provides cars, it provides access to this, you know, 
dream of the American dream of owning a vehicle, being middle class, etc. Um, we can fast forward and say what's good for Walmart, which is now one of the largest companies in the U.S., is not necessarily good for America. And I think his point was simply that we have to think about where the production is actually occurring when we're talking about physical goods, as well as all the things that get people excited and that, frankly, are making a lot of the money right now, which is the fact that physical goods um, and the delivery of them has been radically decoupled from the ownership of information and from the generation of capital. And that's what I think further drives the, the inequality. You look at a company like Uber and all of these other, um, you know, organizations. Airbnb's. That, yeah, huge, huge Which market. do not make physical goods. We're now a service-based economy in, in Europe and North America. At its best, right? At its maximum. But they rely, right? Have you ever been to a virtual Airbnb or driven in a non-car for Uber? They rely on physical goods. They rely on physical goods which they do not own. Right. So um, they, they, that's a decoupling. Yeah, that's a decoupling. That's a decoupling. Yeah. And that's, what, that's coming back to this notion of it's not linear. There's multi-dimensions of this. And I think the Industrial Revolution at the time must have looked equally as complex exactly. because there was information flow. But it was... It was more localized, it was more physical, it was more centered on, you know, they, they hadn't in, invented in, interesting financial instruments at that point, had they? And so we look at the flow of money and we look at the flow of material and we look at the flow of information and I think we're looking at quite different maps. Could, could I, there's a number of issues that, that come out there, could I sort of break them down a little bit? Um, there's the issue about Brexit and Trump and what caused that and the implications of that. Secondly, there's the issue which is related about the rise in inequality in some parts of the world. Again, mm -hmm. that's disputed depending on how you measure it and which countries you look at. And thirdly, the issue of technology, artificial intelligence and robotics. So if we just look at those in turn, if that's okay. Um, Brexit and Trump. Um, what's the implications of Brexit and Trump? If, if we put them together, we may want to separate them out. Uh, for the global economy rather than just for the UK or the US? I think we are definitely seeing the rising, the rising of walls, right? I mean, just the message. Metaphoric walls as exactly, well. Exactly, metaphorical walls. walls yeah. And, just and literally, message. possibly. And literally, possibly, in the case of yeah. Trump and Mexico. But, um, and, and so there's no, there's no denial there. And what you just said, Michael, in the beginning about the tariffs and solar panels and I remember what was the washing machine washing machines is um, that's only the start exactly that's only the start perhaps but I think so so I think there's no denial that this is happening um, which will have obviously forces have counter forces right so we will see some action on the other side raising their own walls in order to protect so so we're getting into the, 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 the other side being what China and Europe the China, Europe all, all the yeah. bigger sort of yeah. combined economies if you think Europe as a combined economy but I think what What's interesting there is the fact that eventually what this drives is, in my mind, a bit of an increase in, in the costs of moving the goods around and getting the goods to people, which will have implications economically, right? We should see some slow you know, economic progress by definition, right? The system is becoming much more fragmented, which would imply that it doesn't have access to all the possible capabilities. It doesn't have access to all possible you know, low-cost sources. So we will see some increase in the cost of doing business in general, which will lead to slower economic progress, which, coming back to what Neil said before, is an interesting feedback loop that the people who are driving this primarily, so the voters that they, they reacted to the condition, rightly so, potentially, 
they will be the first ones to get hurt and it's subsequently everybody else, right? I mean, this is sort of um, coming back because essentially the economies are going to slow down and, and naturally when the economy is going to slow down, where is the biggest cost coming first? To the people who don't have access to, to all the possibilities. So the people who voted for Trump and Brexit are the ones that are going to lose most? I, I think so. I think so. I, I would Possibly in the, in the short term, but I think as you said, so in the medium term, it's going to be many people. Exactly. You know, Everyone. You know, um, not just the cost of goods, but in your third piece around, you know, around the impact of technology and artificial intelligence, which we'll come to in a second. So I think, you know, a lot of us will lose in different ways. Can, uh, can I put a counterpoint? Um, yes. Um, if we look at the world economy at the moment, it's growing pretty well, and it's synchronised largely with all economies growing at a reasonable rate. Since the, since the financial crisis, some economies have grown, some have not. But we've seen, despite the problems of both Grexit and now Brexit, yeah, exactly. the European Union is growing reasonably well. North America is growing reasonably well, and it was, was growing reasonably well before Donald Trump. And China has been growing reasonably well. Of course, there are pockets of... of, of but in, broadly speaking, we've got synchronised growth. So does that suggest that we... We might be wrong. We might be wrong. You know, Acadam academics are often wrong. There's always a chance. There's always a chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's the <beauty> of it. <laughs> <laughs> We're allowed to be wrong. Exactly. But again, the there's, there's a couple of other subtexts which I think we're, we're missing. Um, one, one, the biggest possibly is climate change, and the impact of that, which you know could become a roller coaster of, of, of uh, um, um, not to be uh, good stuff. And Which we will be picking up on a future podcast. OK. And um, secondly, this... Uh, I hesitate to call it a turn to the right, but it's, it's a turn to a certain form of leadership. A turn Conservatism and authoritarian leadership. Thank you. Yes. I mean, there is, you know, there is a rise in sort of authoritarian style of leadership emerging you know, across the globe, not just in, you know, in Europe or the US, which also brings a different set of problems. Um, so it's a bit of a mix. It's, it's a complete mash of issues. Well, the, the, I mean, it's interesting that you point out that economies are growing and financial markets are doing well, right, despite all of these things that we seem to be saying. And I think that actually does speak somewhat to the decoupling, our capacity to decouple, our capacity to, to push to the point that something might eventually break. So Oxfam does an annual... Uh, accounting of the of the concentration of wealth, yeah. and year upon year it gets higher and higher. This January they said 82 percent of the global wealth is held by the top one percent. I don't remember the number from last year, but it goes up every year. So the question becomes: At what point can this financial growth actually, you know, with the driving inequality underneath it, last? The other thing that I read recently, actually, in the New York Times this morning, Susan Rice, who's a former national um, security advisor in the U.S., wrote a very interesting uh, opinion piece on um, the global political situation. And I also read that the uh, doomsday clock has now been moved to two minutes to midnight, which is the closest it's been in decades. So uh, financial markets don't like uncertainty a great deal. Um, so at what point does global uncertainty around conflict and potential conflict actually start to influence economic growth? We don't know. But Susan Rice pointed out, um, in her view, the most significant long-term threat to our security may be our domestic political polarization. She's pointing out that the polarization, which we've all been talking about, along 
economic, socioeconomic and cultural lines, and of course party ideology in the US is just moving further and further and further apart. Um, so that at some point perhaps will show up in financial markets, perhaps it won't, and then that, that in itself is a puzzle. But if I may add one, one last thing, I think, I think Jennifer pointed out to something nice with the decoupling, which when we think back even to the financial crisis that started in the States, right, is I think there was a fundamental decoupling between the information management and the artificial, if I may use the word, wealth that was created by all those instruments, even in the mortgage market, right? The mortgage guys were writing mortgages one after the other, yeah. and eventually you could see that they were getting the bonuses, everything was fine, but there was a decoupling from the collateral, right? From the actual value-creating mechanism out there, which is a big danger of a decoupling system, right? And, and I'm, we might be viewing indicators at the top that look extremely positive right now, economies are growing and so on and so forth, but let's not forget that in the last, what, 10 years, the amount of money, new money printed and pumped into the system and, and being available somewhere there into the system is so big compared to the past that essentially I'm not even sure that we're really getting a, a true picture of the underlying collateral yeah. as opposed to some kind of a projection which is a little bit skewed given the fact that there is all this information you know, or a lot skewed. A lot skewed, actually. <laughs> just, just as a response to that, I mean, that decoupling was a product of financial innovation. True, true. Which, I agree with Which you. shows that sometimes innovation is not a good thing. We tend Absolutely. To, we tend to often, Absolutely. We'd often go on about the, the, the need for more innovation. Innovation sometimes can have dark or black effects. Um, and you're quite, I agree totally, a lot of the growth we're seeing now is from quantitative easing, sure. printing money, and that has a limited lifespan. Um, and thirdly, the... The growth we're seeing now reflects what's happened in the past. We haven't quite seen the economic effects, I don't think, of uh, Donald Trump's policy, Brexit, whether what the response from China and everything else. I mean, of course, mar financial markets think they can factor in what's going, going to go happen now in the future. I'm not always certain <laughs> optimistic that, uh, that they always do get the longer term right. I mean, as Keynes said. In the long run, we're all dead. And uh, <laughs> uh, Neil, I say, I mean, this is slightly, slightly off topic, but I mean, I, I think something we, we mentioned earlier about the um, possible beneficial is the wrong word to use, but one of the interesting impacts of Trump, in particular, is a rise around issues of, of gender and uh, an outpouring of people uh, finding the action of powerful individuals, particularly men unacceptable, we've seen that in the press. And the other thing is an increased interest, um, which is long overdue, of the everyday reality of, we, you know, of people. So there's been a spate of sociological works in the US and the places about what it is actually like to live on $4 a day or less, you know, in, in, a, in, in, in the first world, let alone what it's like to live on a lot less in, in other places. So, I mean, that's a, a, a positive, in, in one way, that these issues are being exposed again, which I think is very. Interesting. That is that is the second topic. We, th th this notion of rising inequality, and we tend to think about it in income inequality, but there's also gender inequality, and also particularly the way women are treated in many parts of the world. I mean, I mean, some advocates certainly of income inequality. <coughs> Not least the city of uh, London. Well, we we, we as know we've that. Seen in the press. Well, we know that very much here, here in the UK. Um, I mean, there's been a big, big push in the US, obviously, but we're, we're seeing it very much in the UK with some pretty um, awful stuff in the press at the moment. Um, but I mean, in terms of 
particularly, but be it income inequality or gender inequality, we we've been brought into relief at the moment. I mean, th arguably that's a product of the way the global economy has evolved. Some advocates would say, well, certainly on income inequality, that um, that's a product of capitalism. Uh, and you get the trickle-down effects. And if capitalism to work effectively, you have to have income inequality. Others would argue it's causing fractures in society, uh, that income inequality is, is too large, in, particularly in Europe and North America at the moment. Things are different in China and India for, for, because of the different stages of development. Um, what's the view about income inequality? Is it something, is it, is it a price worth paying? Or do we have to address it? And how do we address it? I think at some point, it is going to be addressed. I think it already is being addressed. We wouldn't have the rise of what we were just talking about, these populist movements, if it weren't being keenly felt. Um, I question whether we, whoever that we is, can effectively address it because the interests, uh, you know, that the, this is one thing that actually is linear, <laughs> not linear, it's actually exponential, it's actually accumulative, right? It's, it, and the interests of those who are benefiting generally do not align with alleviating the problem. So that, that's, but I think it's not simply the income inequality, it's the other forms of inequality. People have woken up and realized that the system is not rigged in their favor. Um, and that the system is rigged, and people are getting angry about that justly, and starting to notice that they and others like them can actually connect across issues and can actually try to change things. Um, we've seen a number of, of movements, including the Occupy movement, that get very strong for a moment, but it's really a moment. And that might be because there's always something else going on, there's always something else in the news cycle. The question is, actually are any of these shifts that we're seeing now enough to force change in the boardroom or wherever it needs to be? It's, 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 it's very hard for any of us to, to think of alternatives or take on you know, capitalism or, or whatever. But what is happening, I mean, it's happening um, you know, across society, is a rise of trying to find alternatives, ways of living and doing things. So it could be becoming a social entrepreneur, or it could be trying to make a change within your own business, which our MBA students are really engaged with. So there's something that's happening where people do actually want to take a degree of control of what they can control. And I think that is you know, quite important. It's always been around, but it's, it's reconfigured partly through information technology and, and whatever. And generational. And generational. Right? It's always yeah. generational. The next gen generation is always more idealistic. But I think people coming of age right now see some trends that are very disturbing to them and don't want to let these slide by. So it may be a moment. I'm wondering, I'm wondering to what extent potentially we're avoiding to look at one thing that might be the solution there, which is looking at more interventionist systems. Right, so, so in a sense, again, I, I'll go back to my spectrum. I think we, we, we had it go too long on the, generically speaking, market-based thinking, right? Let things be figured out and eventually, you know, the economics are going to play out and value is going to trickle down and so on and so forth. And, and at some level, that is a good perspective, potentially, to think about, right? And if you are finding yourself in a very restricted context, but maybe went all the way to the very uh, liberal context that... Now we start seeing, again, it's not working and we need to move back into some kind of counterbalancing forces. How exactly this could happen, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So raising the taxes, having the governments. 
just a couple of observations about that. There's been often been a prevailing wisdom about how economies are, or, are organised. Then there's a massive shock, and then we think, actually, we got it wrong and we need to reconfigure it. You, you saw that before the Great Depression. And then we had, after the Second World War, we had the Keynesian Golden Age. Then we had the stagflation, the stagnation and inflation, ugly word, in the 1970s. And then we had a shift to more, you know, capitalism unleashed. But even within that, there's sort of not a capitalism, non-capitalism. There's lots of varieties of capitalism. And lots of these varieties of capitalism reflect different societies' objectives, different politics, different social norms. And often they compete very, very well, whether you are a coordinated market economy with government intervention or a liberal market economy such as the United States where perhaps the government is, is seen to be what needed to be smaller. So it's not capitalism versus non-capitalism. Exactly. There's lots of varieties of capitalism. And many of the coordinated market economies compete very well with progressive tax systems um, and lower levels of inequality. But we, ha we collectively have to make choices. We have to decide what sort of society we wish to live in. And there are mechanisms to decide. One is obviously the vote. Uh, and then two is regulation or not. You know, what behaviours are acceptable or not. I think that discussion is already emerging. But, I mean, I think we'll see more of that. That's, you know, can we allow very large companies not to pay tax in certain, certain areas? Um, you know, can we allow certain behaviours in terms of, you know, how, you know, top-level executives are paid, vis-à-vis, -vis, you know, people um, at the lower end? That they're choices we can make. I think I think Neil, there's another component, the other viewpoint on this. Indeed, the regulation has to kick in, but I also think that governments, from especially, I'm thinking in some particular European governments, you could think of, and 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 you've seen governments who have missed the boat completely on thinking of themselves as larger, effective management and allocation systems. So, so it, it, you know, this notion, it was a bit too emotional, I would say, in terms of how we, we think about what the governments are supposed to do. And in the end of the day, they need to be also effective. And, and, and that hasn't necessarily played, creating a bit of an issue. I think it's a very interesting issue about, about the role of government. But um, if we look at all the OECD countries, the, the group of relatively rich countries, the size of government from 1960 to the financial crisis has increased. Well, it's increased as a share of GDP. And then you think, well, why? And you decompose why it is. The, the three big components are increases in health, increases in pensions, and increases in education. And I think. That's because they're providing services that people want. As people have got broadly richer, what do you want? You want a new iPhone, perhaps, or perhaps a new car or a holiday. But you want better education for your children. You want better health care for yourselves and your family, which gets very expensive in later life, and people are living longer. And because of that, pensions. Now, we can say education, health, and pensions, we can shift it all to the private sector or all to partly the private sector. But in many rich countries, the state provides those resources. And I've got no doubt that education, health and pensions will be an increasing share of the economies in the future. The challenge is, do you think that should be provided by the state or, or the private sector or, or some combination? But I think, I think if we look only at the total size as a metric, it's the same like, let me take the analogy of a big corporate, right? 
which tends to increase the headquarter budget because now they're becoming global and they're doing much more. But this hides all kinds of inefficiencies at some level, right? I'm not sure that the increase in, in the budget required by the governments to, to spend on all those <coughs> was reflecting necessarily the best allocation towards the needs, as opposed to we are doing it in a particular way. And you know what? In order to reach now the bigger demand, we need just to pump on more money, more positions, more of this. We, we certainly need to be more inefficient. Exactly. But there's also the notion that there, are, there may be inefficiencies in the public sector, but there's also many inefficiencies in the definitely, private sector. Definitely. This, is not, this yes. is not the notion as one inefficient and one is inefficient. I, I, I want to just move on, move on to one other topic, if, that, if I may, that we, we mentioned um, in, in discussion earlier, uh, and that's the impact of technology, robotics, and artificial intelligence. Because one argument would be, I mean, first of all, I, I, I'm a great believer that technology creates jobs. It destroys jobs in the short term, but creates jobs and creates income. If you look before the Industrial Revolution, world, the world economy hardly grew at all. From the Industrial Revolution, the world economy has grown rapidly, albeit at an erratic pace across time and across countries. So technology is broadly a good thing, but it can be it's very disruptive and destroy jobs uh, in the short term. We've got technology coming through in terms of robotics, artificial intelligence, but it may have an impact on the global distribution of economic activity because a lot of technology up until recently has allowed companies to re relocate economic activity. So I can relocate economic activity, say, to Asia because I know that labour costs are lower there. But now what happens if I have a robot? Why do I need to employ a Chinese worker? I could employ... I can use a machine, which I, I should have to build and pay for, but I don't have to pay a wage. So will Donald Trump be bringing economic activity back to America? But it won't be American workers that are doing the jobs, it'll be American machines that are doing the jobs. In, in this case, technology may lead to, again, disruptions to globalization because of the impact of robotics. And of course, the next stage is artificial intelligence, where in, in 10 years' time, there won't be four of us sat around here, there'll be four machines having a debate about globalisation. Is it? And, and, what, and what are we going to do with all these well, humans who've got no jobs? Well, that, that's a good, that's, that's a key point. And uh, in Cambridge, we have the uh, Centre for Existential Risk. And that's one thing that, uh, when I, was, I had lunch with one of them, actually this question, what are you going to do? How are you going to organise society when there are no jobs? Of course, we're a long way from that. So there's lots of choices to be made. But I think, that, you know, what is, is, going, is possibly is already happening is Things are being made by machines and by robots, and services will increasingly be delivered through artificial intelligence. You know, sports writing's already done a lot of it by uh, AI. Um, increasingly, it will affect people who possibly benefited from, from previous ways of economic growth, in particular the middle classes um, and professionals, who will see their areas of expertise diminish um, in, you know, as, as technology, AI, learns to do things like surgery or, or write books even. The, um, one of the authors of the 1972 book, The Limits to Growth, Jorgen Randers, was at Cambridge about a year ago, and he said there are three things that people will do for jobs in the future. They centre on care, health care, largely for an ageing population, creativity and research and development. So it's the points of the economy in which the human touch, for lack of a better word, word is needed. That can include judgment, decision-making, um, but it can also include 
creation, innovation. So the question then becomes which countries, which regions, which people will have access to the education and training and opportunities that will put them into those positions of power because those will be the positions of power. Um, and it's not at all clear that it will follow exactly on previous revolutions um, in terms of actually the sheer production of capability um, in high tech. It's not confined necessarily to the, to the north, to the west. Um, but in terms of the needs uh, of healthcare, et cetera, I, I think the West actually needs to take a very close look because we're going to be hit hardest by some of the, some of the needs. Stelios, is, is this time different with tech, technology? I think, I think we're living through the first era, if I make the analogy again to the Industrial Revolution, where um, indeed jobs are going to be destroyed massively. And that's the transition era, which will determine what happens afterwards, actually, right? I mean, if, if, if there is a huge risk now, it's going to happen now, that they drive all the way down, and then this is becoming an existential risk, as Neil said. I'm, I'm, I, I think it's extremely hard to predict what kind of jobs could be created um, 20, 30 years from now, right? I, I, I feel completely unable, the same way that I think somebody in, I don't know, 1880 or something, would feel unable to say that there is somebody who has a job of actually write typing in a device that's called the keyboard, looking at the screen. Even go back to the 1970s, yeah. you, you wouldn't have predicted people would have been um, pr computer programmers yeah. or, or dog exactly. walkers or exactly. personal trainers, exactly. whatever that is. Exactly. But, but people are making choices now, aren't they? People are making decisions now around technology and application of technology and what happens next. But there's a good question whether they make choices. Hmm. To what extent we are actually making choices or we, we are having sort of this evolutionary race of people trying to find the next big thing. And there's not really a choice. It's just everybody is pushing a little bit of the boundary of knowledge until something major is going to be happening. And, and that is not an issue of choice unless you go to regulation, right? Unless you go to the point that says, look, that type of technology mm -mm, we cannot touch because you go to prison or, or whatever it is, right, if you want to be drastic. But, well, so, I was going to say, if there's one thing that looking at the human history of technology development tells us is that we're really, really bad at predicting unintended consequences. Yeah. So to believe that we can put in place a regulatory system or any other scheme that would help us foresee future impacts. I mean, if we could do that, we wouldn't be in the environmental crisis that we're in right now. Exactly. We wouldn't have, you know, yeah. dioxins showing up in, in, in every you know, animal in the ocean, right? We're very good at regulating the past crisis and not very good at regulating the next exactly. one. Exactly. So this thing might be different. <laughs> but, but that's the other thing we're good at as humans, is optimism, hoping that it will be different this time, believing we can make it different this time. Sure. Can, can I ask two short questions, well, two short questions and two, two short answers, probably. Um, just on, on, on the link between um, technology and inequality, do you think that the development of technology, particularly robotics and artificial intelligence, will increase inequality. I'm just thinking that if you own the machines, you'll get the return from it, and if you don't own the machines, you don't. What, what's the, the link between technological development in the future and inequality? Is it, is it owning the machines, or is it knowing how to interact with the machines? Is it going to be the coders that I, win? I think the coders will have the wages, but if you look at the Piketty argument, it's the ownership of capital that, that's crucial in generating inequality. And the crucial capital here may be 
owning the technology, maybe the machines, the artificial intelligence. I, I'm slightly pessimistic that technology will increase inequality. But people, you can make stuff or create stuff, but someone's going to have to buy the stuff. That, so, if you've, yeah. so if you impoverish everyone in the process, yeah. I think that's what it's called shooting yourself in your own foot, yeah. is it not? Yeah. I think it will do both. It will do both. It will do both. It will do both in different ways. I don't. I agree. I mean, when you look at entrepreneurs, for every argument that you hear that this is leading to sort of more inequality and so on and so forth, for every that, uh, such argument, you see somebody who comes out of the blue, right, completely changing the perspective and, and creating wealth out of what you would consider nothing, right? So, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting. I, I don't think we can make a, a final statement on that. Final question. Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future path of the global economy? We are living in these interesting times. We're living in dis disruptive times. Are we all going to return to normal? Or is, is this a, the things at the moment are going to be good or a temporary aberration? Optimistic. Optimistic? Optimistic. I think, I think that's, the, that's the, the last thing that... Um, that should go out of anybody's list is hope, right? Let's say it like this. So, so if, if we start pessimistically, this is like giving up on the fact that the, we humans beat the system all the time. Oh, no, no, you, you can be pessimistic and want to do something about it. I, I, I'm a pessimist, but I haven't given up hope. Okay. So I'm having my cake and eat it. No, a hopeful pessimist? <laughs> I'm a hopeful pessimist, yeah. A hopeful pessimist, okay. I suppose I'm pessimistic. I'm pessimist in the short term and optimist in the long run, I suppose, is, is my compromise. Neil? Um, I'm, I think I'm with you. Um, I think it's important to debate the issues and you know, air the issues, um, but it's not enough to critique. One has to do things as well and one has to present viable alternatives if, 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 if you can. And that's something that's missing, I think, in lots of debate at the moment. We're very good at critique. We're not really good at presenting alternatives. That's a very good point. Jennifer, last word. I think being a hopeful pessimist is probably a reasonable place to be. It's not, there are not a lot of things that one could look at now and say they are, they are easily resolved. On the other hand, what can we do if we don't, as Neil said, get angry and think about some alternatives? Great, I'd, I'd like to thank uh, Jennifer Stelios and Neil for joining me today for this, for this podcast. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can follow us at the Cambridge Judge Business School's website. You can also see us on Twitter at the Cambridge Judge Business School's Twitter feed, which is at CambridgeJBS. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can join us next time.